It's poll day on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Baldwin Wallace University, which we work with frequently on polls, has given us the early look at their latest, and we have three different elements to discuss. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi, who is up first. Courtney, as I said, we got up this morning with newly released results of statewide polling by the Community Research Institute of Baldwin Wallace University, Tom Sutton, good guy. Let's go straight to issue one, which would provide a constitutional guarantee of legalized abortion in Ohio. What's going to happen if this poll is accurate? Well, like you said, if this poll's accurate, it's going to pass with flying colors. The information we got from Baldwin Wallace shows that 58% of Ohioans are are looking to vote yes on issue one, and about 34% are looking to vote no. There's an 8% group that's undecided, which is frankly a little surprising to me, but fair enough. Some folks are still working to make up their mind. This poll talked to about 1,070 Ohioans who were selected at random. The margin of error was about 4.5% for those top line numbers. But even when you take that into account, it seems clear that most Ohioans want want this. And, and you know, when you start to look down at some of the demographic splits here, you see something that's not too surprising. Women support this a little bit more than men. Women are at about 61%. Men are just under 56% in favor of issue one. But what's really riveting here is the partisan split. And it's not nearly as one might assume, especially if you're basing those assumptions on on the stance of of Republican politicians down in Columbus who are, you know, overwhelmingly against this. Nearly, unsurprisingly, nearly 89% of Democrats support it, according to the poll results. About 51% of independents are in favor, and a whopping 39.5% of Republicans are for it. Yeah, I, this was one, I'm not surprised by this at all. This has been what every poll has shown, that a third, basically, of Ohio opposes it, and most of the rest of the state is in favor of it, which is why issue one in August was such a cynical, sinister thing. They were trying to have that third dictate policy for the rest of the, the state. What What is... What is not surprising either is all the advertising, all the nonsense that's been out there doesn't matter. People have largely made up their minds. They made them up a long time ago. And this one was pretty much a fait accompli the minute it got onto the ballot. Right. And and so, like you said, no one's no no side here. When we talked to Tom Sutton, like you said, the political science professor at Baldwin Wallace, he, he told us kind of what we'd assumed that that no one no side here is really looking or has a reasonable chance at least to persuade people who are in the other camp. People know what they believe, they know what they favor, and the billboards and, and TV commercials aren't really gonna sway them here. But, you know, Sutton Sutton at least found it surprising at the the Republican numbers that that back issue one. And, you know, he kind of broke it down for us. There's just because you're 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 in this party, abortion's a very personal issue and what you believe personally isn't necessarily going to line up with the party line. And and he's pointing to what must be a group of silent abortion supporting Republicans out there who, you know, maybe you don't you don't think on your face that they're out there when you look at the advertisements and the dialogue going on, but come election day, it's likely they'll be making their voices heard. Well, 
There are women in the Republican Party, and this is about ending this male dominion over women's bodies. It doesn't that doesn't surprise me at all. This has been something people have been able to think about a long time. The antis are, are grasping at straws. First thing this morning, I had in a mail: true or false? This the, the issue one erases parental consent. And, you know, just all of the the stuff people keep throwing at this. They attacked. Laura Hancock mercilessly yesterday for her very even-handed approach to dissecting the lies they've been telling. It's amazing how personal these folks get when they don't like a story. It's just it's 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 kind of vicious and mean-spirited. I had someone email me and tell me based on our conversation on this podcast that I was going to have to answer for my position in hell, basically. So yes, it gets very personal. But I I do want to, Laura Hancock has done an incredible job of walking on the razor blade to do the reporting on this. And whether you like the way things are going or not, you, you really do not have any basis to criticize her reporting. You may not like the message, but you ought to stop attacking. Right. You might not like the truth because what you're trying to spin is not. Yeah. So anyway, not as not much surprise here, but it does pretty much confirm what we expect will happen in three weeks. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, I've long thought that issue two would pass, but with a smaller margin. What does the poll tell us about that? The poll tells us that approval for recreational marijuana or issue two on the ballot cuts across all demographic lines. Overall, 57.4% say they'll vote yes on issue two, no 35.1, and then we have an undecided factor of 7.5%. So in looking across the demographics, those with the highest approval of issue two are blacks, 75%, followed by liberals at 72.6%, the 18 to 49 age group, 71.4%, parents, surprisingly, 70.3%, and then Democrats are 66.4% in favor of the yes on issue two. But parents also have a high undecided factor. 9.5% of parents are undecided on this right now. The highest no's we saw are Republicans at 42.9%, conservatives at right at 50%, and then 50 plus age group, 45% of them said that they will vote no. But there's a lot of high undecided numbers here. Rural voters, 10.4% are undecided. Uh, Democrats, 10.1% undecided, which is surprising to me. And then whites are 8.4% undecided. Yeah, although even with all those undecided, this thing wins handily. I had sent a note to Tom Sutton yesterday saying, I'm surprised by this. I thought the margin would be smaller. He said he was surprised too. This is resounding support for this, which think about what we're seeing here, right? If you go back to issue one in August, our government was trying to erase the vote of the voters. They were trying to do something completely contrary to the voters, and the voters in large numbers said, stick it. They have passed a heartbeat bill that clearly is not in line with the way most of the state thinks, the large majority of the state thinks. And they won't legalize marijuana, even though clearly the majority of the state wants it legalized. What does this say for representational government? I think these three issues are the clearest evidence we've seen about gerrymandering. Our legislature does not represent us. And it's taking people going to the ballot 
to get the things done that they consider to be important. Yeah, it kind of looks like a whole lot of dysfunction going on down there in Columbus. I have to say, and it, it kind of vindicates it in a way, because like I said, the highest approval rate was among black people. And these are the ones who have been disproportionately targeted for minor marijuana offenses. So I, I'm surprised, but not surprised by that number. It comes down to turnout. These these people all said they're very likely to vote. I think with the abortion issue, the people are going to vote. This has been something people are passionate about, have been. When the Supreme Court dumped Roe v. Wade, you could feel the wave across the nation of people who are so distressed by what that meant for women and their health. So I think the turnout will be there, but it, you, you do wonder where all these people show up. And you're right, Lisa, black people have been disproportionately punished for marijuana. This is something the cops have used for racial profiling for decades and decades and decades. And this is a way to finally stop that ability to do so. Fascinating numbers. And, you know, really, we're not seeing anything else that's reliable on this. So, you know, I'm grateful that Baldwin Wallace invests in polls like these, and I'm really grateful for our partnership with them. It's been very fruitful. A salute to Tom Sutton. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's keep that poll rolling. Laura, what does it say about the public's feel for the people running for the U.S. Senate in Ohio in 2024? And while we're at it, let's talk about what Ohio's think what Ohioans think about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So there's good news and bad news for Sherrod Brown, Senator Sherrod Brown in this poll. The good news is that Ohioans don't really know any of the Republicans gunning for his job. They know Frank LaRose the best, honestly, and actually give him more approval than disapproval, which I was surprised by. But the bad news is they don't like Sherrod Brown's fellow Democrat, Joe Biden. They don't really like Trump either. To be fair, they don't like most of the people they're being asked about. 61% of voters said they had an unfavorable opinion of Biden. 48% very unfavorable. 52% they ha- said they had an unfavorable opinion of Trump, but his favorability was 48%. So that's a little higher than, than Biden. They don't like J.D. Vance, really, although nearly a quarter of respondents said they're unfamiliar with him, which makes you wonder how closely people are paying attention to what's going on in Washington and how much they follow these politicians because they really don't have any idea about Dolan or Moreno or LaRose. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, though. Moreno and Dolan ran for Senate two years ago. I mean, it's not like they're unknowns. They ran. Dolan went the distance to the primary. Moreno dropped out because Donald Trump asked him to. But how how do you run Senate in the Republican Party and most of Ohio doesn't have any clue who you are. Actually, I think what this speaks to, and this is distressing, is the decline of media. Mm-hmm. Most of the state does not have a local news outlet like they used to. There used to be newspapers that covered this stuff and people read fairly closely. They don't have it. There's really nowhere for them to get the stories about these guys. I mean, we had a full out profile on Bernie Moreno mm-hmm. on Sunday. Our readers, you know, we have millions of people come to us on our platforms, know who Bernie Moreno is. But if you're not one of the readers of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer and the other platforms, where do you get that? How do you find out who Bernie Moreno is? There's not really commercials yet. So that's a distressing state. I don't know how you fix that. 
Well, and I think that's what Tom Sutton said when he talked to our reporters. I think Andrew Tobias wrote the story was that this is a huge opportunity for them to drop millions of dollars on ads because people don't have an opinion. So they have a lot of people to sway. But yes, 61% of the 850 respondents said they didn't know they're unfamiliar with Bernie Moreno. And obviously he's from the Cleveland area, although I believe he lives in Columbus now. So you understand why you know Cincinnati or Southeast Ohio doesn't have an idea, but um, yeah, Frank LaRose, forty three percent are unfamiliar with him, and he's he's the Secretary of State who's been in the news a whole lot. Fifty six percent on Matt Dolan, unfamiliar uh, with him. They do basically know who Sherrod Brown is, but like I said, his affiliation with Biden is going to hurt him in Ohio. Yeah. And, and look, the name recognition of Frank LaRose is mud. So he probably <laughs> wishes he had Bernie Moreno's numbers because what people know about him is he was the face of issue one and he's not doing his job. He's putting politics first. Um, I, it, it, it does point out nobody really wants Joe Biden no. to be president anymore. And the Democrats, the National Democratic Party should be ashamed of itself for just going along with that. They're counting on Donald Trump to be the candidate and think that the anti-Trump vote will keep their candidate in. But the, because we have this party system that, that nominates, which mm -hmm. we should do away with, we end up with terrible choices. Joe yeah. Biden is not the right candidate for president. Right. And pretty much everybody knows that. Gretchen Whitmer would be a candidate. Gavin Newsom would be a candidate. You can come up with five or six people who would be dynamic candidates that would be interesting, that might get people excited. This poll shows Ohio has no interest in Joe Biden being president. And I think that speaks to both Democrats and Republicans. Go away. Let's have some new ideas. But, uh, you, you've got to look and think about what the rest of the world sees when they look at the United States. These are the two best people you have to put forward to run your country. Like, it's pathetic. Well, Joe Biden is not exactly a slouch, especially where foreign policy is concerned. I, I, I'm not, I just don't think he's the best choice. And when you look at age and and record and you know, how many people feel like he's their leader? There's got to be. I mean, there's. you would think that we could come up with better choices. And I agree with Chris that the party system is really hampering who can compete. Think about how valiant he would be if he dropped so that it would bubble it up. I do wonder, if, based on this poll, is there another Republican that might get into this Senate race now? Looking at this, that mm. nobody knows who these guys are. You know, Frank LaRose has fallen fast. We talked about it the other day you know is there still an opening for somebody who has name recognition to get in when i mean wouldn't it You'd be have interesting to file really fast right yeah. that, that deadline's coming up from the march primary it's, isn't it isn't it uh december it's or January? in december yeah yeah so you know what if john houston did it I mean, everybody knows who John Houston is. <laughs> we all what know if, he wants to be governor, though. <laughs> yeah, but but that that may not happen, right? But, right. But if he or ran Faber. for Senate, he, Keith Faber. Keith Faber has had a pretty good run. Uh, and people he can't know run again. Who right? he is, and so I mean, these are these are real guys who have a real record. Keith Faber is the guy that actually managed to bro, bro, uh, negotiate a comp, uh, compromise on the uh, districts. So. I don't know. I, when I looked at these results, I thought, man, if I were a Republican who had illusions of grandeur in terms of running for stuff, the Senate is the most exclusive club in America. <laughs> There's only 100 of those folks. Right. So, you know, I, I it'll be interesting to see if somebody sees that opportunity and grabs it.
Good stuff from the polls. We got three stories published on cleveland.com. We got more coming. We're trying to get some of the, the more deeper cross tabs on marijuana to see if you can measure whether younger people, really younger people, have an outsized approval of it. The break we got was just between people under 50, people over 50. We're hoping to get some more. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I guess the pandemic was officially declared over a while ago, but the ramifications of it continue to dog us. Courtney, has Cleveland recovered yet from the drop in visitors it saw when COVID-19 cut back on everyone's travel habits? Not quite. You know, we're e- we're eking towards that direction, but we're not quite there. So these numbers in, uh, apply to 2022. Looking back, Cle- the Cleveland area saw 18 million visitors last year. And that's good news in that it's up 12 percent from 2021 when we were still really in the thick of the pandemic effects. Right. But we're still not hitting levels we saw in 2019 prior to the pandemic. Back then, our visitor levels were at 19.6 million. So still a hair under there. But even so, those who came here last year, you know, for leisure travel, business and group travel, they did spend a, a new record amount while they were in town. So that's that's good news. And this information comes from Destination Cleveland, by the way, the, the Tourism Bureau. But, but the spend last year was believed to be $6.4 billion. So even though we're a little bit down on bodies, we're up on the dollar front. That's probably a, a positive development here. And what Dave Gilbert pointed out in the story is they measure how we're doing against the country and other cities, other places. And by that measure, we're doing really well. Yes, that is also good news here. So Cleveland's 12% bump last year from 2021 was above increases in both Ohio and the U.S. as a whole. In Ohio, travel was just up 6%, so about half of our increase. And and in the U.S., it was a little bit below us at 11%. And Gilbert told us that, like you said, that's a good way to gauge how we're doing against peers. Though I will throw in one caveat here. On the other hand, Ohio has recouped as a state what it lost in visitation during the pandemic. So Ohio statewide, even though the increase was smaller than Cleveland's, it's still above visitor levels in 2019. And lots of that has to do with people who visit Hocking Hills, Amish country, and the islands. But but looking wider, Cleveland has recovered better than, than other big cities, which I think this is an interesting number here. So places like New York and Chicago, Chicago, for instance, is still down 20% from 2019. So it's not hitting us quite at the level as some of our larger larger peers. Yeah, the folks at Destination Cleveland work their butts off to to affect those numbers. It, it's an organization that over the years has shown an incredible level of success, so much so that you want to put more on their backs, you know, get the message out about living here, which is something we talked about. There's a thought that we're doing a terrible job of marketing ourselves as a tech center, which we really are. And maybe y'all have Destination Cleveland take over that because when they get the messaging going out, it's remarkable how they can win people over. So good news out of Dave Gilbert. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting he also told us that even though we haven't quite recovered, we're expected to exceed those pre-pandemic levels in the next year or two, looking at things like the 2024 NCAA Women's Final Four tor- tournament and the Pan American Games in July next year. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. 
We said Monday it would be Jim Jordan week on the podcast. They called the roll Tuesday on whether the controversial Ohioan should be House Speaker. God forbid. Lisa, how did it go? And I guess I'm on the Jim Jordan beat this week. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the first vote on the House floor yesterday, uh, Jordan only got 200 votes at 17 shy of what he needs. 20 Republicans voted against him. Um, They are expected to take another House floor vote today at 11 o'clock. Democrats were in lockstep behind Hakeem Jeffries from New York. All 212 voted for him. Now, it's unclear at this point, you know, it took Kevin McCarthy 15 votes to get the speaker's gavel. And it's unclear if more votes will go for or against Jordan. We really don't know. What we do know is that nobody from Ohio voted against Jordan. They all voted for Jordan. Max Miller of Rocky River says he's not going to change his vote unless Jordan withdraws. But, you know, even before they knew, because before the floor vote, there were secret ballots. So they really didn't know who was voting against them, but that didn't stop Jordan supporters and right-wing media from going after those who they thought were against Jordan. And they had this uh, pretty uh, bullying kind of campaign getting, we're going to primary you if you don't vote for, you know, Jordan. So, but he did win over a couple of skeptics, among them Mike Rogers, the Armed Services Chair from Alabama, Ann Wagner from Missouri, and Vern Buchanan of Florida. Based on the reasonableness of people in Northeast Ohio, if I were a Republican that wanted to run in Congress, I'd run against Dave Joyce and say, vote for the guy that didn't vote for for, um, him as speaker, for Jim Jordan as speaker. I can't believe Joyce did that. I mean, he's supposed to be the centrist. He's Mm -hmm. supposed to be the guy that tries to do the right thing. He knows who Jordan is. Jordan is not the caliber of person you want third in line to the presidency. He knows that, and he voted for him anyway. I hope he gets a primary from somebody who makes that the center of it. He voted for Jim Jordan as House Speaker. Is that who you want representing? Well, the worry about primary challenges are is they're usually more extreme than the one who's currently in office. So be careful what you wish for. Except if you look at his district and how it voted on issue one in August, you can see that there are a lot of thoughtful people that are taking a measure of what's going on. And my bet is you could appeal to them to, to, and say, do you want somebody with a backbone? Do you want somebody who stands up on principle instead of going along, get along because the party told him to? There is no real legitimate reason for Dave Joyce to vote for Jim Jordan. We, and he knows it. And he did it anyway. Yeah, that, I, I just, it's too bad. That was I mean, my biggest disappointment that Joyce didn't yeah. vote no. I mean, even if he would have voted present, but he voted for him. He wants to take this guy who every bit of evidence that exists says is a terrible elected leader. I and mean, he was, the, the number of things he has been, been involved in that are terrible for the country, trying to overthrow the election of the president, constantly in communication with Donald Trump during the insurrection. And that's the guy Dave Joyce thinks should be third in line to the presidency. A stunner. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did you know that in certain conditions, spouses cannot be charged with raping spouses in Ohio? Laura, how can that possibly be? And what is the legislature finally doing about it? Yeah, I think if this was one of those old wives tales, I didn't believe if know if it were really true. But it's really true in Ohio that under current Ohio law, it's a felony for anyone to engage in a sexual act with another through use of force, married or not. But it's not illegal if you're the spouse of the offender to be drugged 
to prevent resistance to a sexual sexual act. Mm-hmm. And also there's something called the spousal rape exemption that applies for lesser sexual crimes, including sexual battery, sexual imposition, and gross sexual imposition. So if you're married and you live together, you're not going to get charged if you do that to your spouse because it's allowed. So this is the idea is we're going to close this loophole. And it passed in committee on Tuesday with a unanimous vote. State Representative Jessica Miranda, she's a Cincinnati area Democrat. She championed the bill. She said, this is an archaic piece of code that clearly does not need to be in the books anymore. People are dumbfounded that this even still exists, which makes it a no-brainer to fix it. And a bunch of states have been fixing it lately, including Mississippi. So I think there's 11 states left that have this exemption on the uh, the books, including in Ohio. Even Bill Seitz said he, resport, he supports removing this spousal exemption. And advocates have been working on it since 1985. However, Seitz did say he had a long record of concern about over-criminalization. I was like, what? What? <laughs> Just, is this a vestige of basically when you got married, a woman became yeah. the property of the man? Yeah, I think that's what it, you know, you can't rape your spouse, right? Because they belong to you. And that would have gone back centuries, of, you know, decades at least. And and that was the prevailing idea, right? For Wouldn't it be at some point, you know, domestic violence didn't even really exist as a crime? It's, a, it's a really kind of a shocker that that's on the books. Especially as we head in less than three weeks to a vote on legalizing abortion, which is, again, about women's rights over their body. Well, I really hope that this gets unanimous approval and gets a speedy passage. And I'm glad that they're championing this now. And it's sad that it's taken this long. Can you imagine being Bill Bill Seitz in this matter and hearing somebody say, even Bill Seitz supports (laughs) fixing it? I mean, what does that say for Bill Seitz's politics? You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland police have been working under a federal consent decree for a lot of years now. Mayor Justin Bibb has said he wants to meet all the requirements and end it. Courtney, what does a new report out this week say about how the police are doing? Yeah, we've still got a way to go to to get to Bibb's goal of, of withdrawing from the consent decree. So what we're talking about here is our first report from Cleveland's new consent decree monitor, Carl Racine. He started recently. He's a he's a former AG from Washington, D.C. And and kind of the harshest criticism that he levied in this in this routine kind of update is is about Cleveland police's culture. Racine's report tells us that CPD continues to struggle to roll out a culture change, you know, struggles to move from a traditional policing kind of mindset that's basically just about arresting people to, to more of a holistic approach that seeks to identify problems in neighborhoods and and actually come up with strategies to to address them. And and basically, Racine in his report called this the biggest challenge CDP faces in the in the years ahead, embracing this new philosophy. You know, we reached out to Bib spokeswoman and and asked about this report, and she notes how Cleveland police have made sig- significant strides in coming into compliance with the consent decree in the last half year or so. But her statement didn't really address this culture change and. And and one one shocking thing from this report is it says Cleveland police fundamentally misunderstands the goal and, and what constitutes community oriented policing. Even for the first six months of this year, officers didn't properly document these community oriented policing efforts 
for a majority of the time. They only documented it correctly like 13% of the time. I hope this isn't some kind of bureaucratic nonsense. Anybody that's been watching Cleveland Police over the years knows that after the consent decree came in and they started to make changes, the relationship between Cleveland Police and this community changed dramatically in a way that I never thought possible. From the day I got to Cleveland, I thought the police just scorned the community they covered. And that has changed. You don't see anywhere near the same numbers of use of force. You don't see the same level of complaints. And the police do, even under the most trying of circumstances, because they're understaffed in a way we've never seen before, they're trying to work with people. You don't see the same level. So I don't understand how they can be so condemned on not doing community-oriented policing unless there's some kind of bureaucratic list of boxes you have to check off that they're not checking. And it really should be. How much has the relationship improved? I think if you polled Cleveland residents then and now, you would get a very different read on how they feel about the police. You know, I I don't disagree with your point there. The relationship has changed immensely during this process, but but perhaps this points to how much change is needed in the first place. Just because (laughs) we're better than we were before doesn't mean we're great, you know? Yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah, it's I just it seems like it was awfully condemning. And I, if I were the city, I'd be thinking, oh, come on, you know, th- there's been huge strides made. What exactly is needed here to meet this requirement? And what is the ultimate goal? What what are we not doing that needs to be done? And again, I hope it's not some checklist. I hope it's not some federal. Well, you have to do this. You have to do this. You, you know, is it paperwork? They're just not writing documents to say I shook hands with 20 people today. No, you know, there's some other examples in there. So so they talked about training when when instructors in the academy train up new police officers kind of in the same category. The report said those instructors struggled to meaningly, meaningfully engage the officers they were training and, and, and not really kind of conveying this philosophy change through, through that instruction. And, th- and this isn't the, this is kind of a, it feels at least from the outside as a more subjective thing than when you're just looking at like straight use of force numbers and how those have declined. Right. But, but there's also other issues that Cleveland police continues to need to address. Like, there's things mentioned in the report, such as random reviews of body-worn cameras. There's an issue with the law department doing a search and seizure review, saying the monitor's not entitled to information needed for yeah, that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's other stuff in here beyond the culture change. It, this is just such a large undertaking. We'll have to see. There's a hearing coming up on it. We'll have to see what the judge says about the uh, the standards. I imagine the city will go in and make a defense of itself. We're done. That's it for today in Ohio for a Wednesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks to Tom Sutton and Baldwin Wallace University for giving us early access to that poll so we could get our stories together. We'll be back Thursday talking about the news. 